So tonight we're going to be in the book of Acts. That's what we've been going through um, in Sunday school right now. And so it's just kind of been on my heart. It's been the book that I've been thinking about some of the most. So we're going to look at a passage in Acts. I'm just curious though, because I don't, I'm not ever there. We're never in each other's Sunday school classes. So what are some of the things you guys are studying in Sunday school right now? Sounds good. It's an amazing prophecy. Yeah. That's good. What are the college looking at right now? Time to see if they're listening. <laughs> Well, the good news is that since it's a passage that Austin has already looked at, if I ask a hard question, Austin should know the answer. <laughs> We're going to be looking, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse This passage is a great passage that gives us a picture of two very different types of men. Two very different guys. And what I think we're going to see here um, is going to be really practical. I'm going to give us just a little bit of the background, just kind of a running background. And then we're going to look at the passage and I want us to compare these two guys and then see what are some really practical things that we can take from this passage for our own lives to make sure that we're following a good example and not a bad example. So we're going to be starting in Acts chapter 4 and we're going to go through part of chapter 5. So let's read Acts 4, 32 through 37 together and then we'll get started. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This passage starts out with a very real need in the early church. I think by any standards, even today, this church would have been considered a mega church. Because by this time, the church is solidly in the thousands um, in attendance. You remember Jesus ascended back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, and then in Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost, and Peter preaches after the um, the apostles and all of the Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, and it says that 3,000 men came to Christ on that day. The next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. They pass a, a man who is lame from birth. He's healed. Peter takes the opportunity to explain what has happened and shares the gospel again, and 2,000 people are saved. So by the end of Acts chapter 3, we have 5,000 men, it says. So that doesn't include women or children. And all throughout the chapters, up through chapter 5, it says that the church was growing. Many were coming to Christ. So it's very possible that by this point in Acts chapter 4, there could have been seven or 8,000 men in the church, not including women and children. So this could have been a church that possibly could have been twenty-five to 30,000 strong. Probably definitely over 20,000 people. A very large church, and it happened very, very quickly. So a lot of issues that arose in the early church were almost managerial issues, um, just common sense type issues. Like in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6 starts out with, just a very serious problem, not all of the widows were getting fed. So there's a lot of issues that are popping up in this early church. And one of them in Acts chapter 4 is that there are a lot of Christians who are in need. And I think that the situation that this early church was in was pretty unique for, for this to come up. Um, now Christ commanded us to take care of the poor. And that's something that we see in the Old Testament and Christ say, and in the book of Acts as well, um, later on in Acts when Paul and Barnabas go back to the Jerusalem council to get some issues hashed out, the Jerusalem council writes a letter to send back to the Gentiles' churches, and in it, it encourages them not to forget about the poor. So forgetting or, or taking care of poor and needy believers is definitely important to the heart of God. And I think that there was a, a very real um, unique need for that in this church because of the makeup of this early church. A lot of these early Christians were coming from really rough backgrounds. And they couldn't keep doing the things that they had been doing to provide for themselves. People who were tax collectors and didn't want to take advantage of people anymore. Prostitutes, thieves, people who had taken care of themselves through dishonest or sinful means, and they weren't able to do that. And now these people no longer have a trade, no longer have a way to provide for themselves. And not only that, you have another group of people who had been lame or blind and had been miraculously healed, 
and didn't have any way to provide for themselves. Because for the first time in their lives, they're able to work. In, um, in Acts chapter 5, it actually says that so many people were getting healed. Peter was so filled with power through the Holy Spirit that people would line the roads with sick and disabled people just so that Peter's shadow might fall on them. And anybody who's, who Peter's shadow fell on was healed. Incredible, miraculous works were going on. So you have those two categories of people, as well as just normal Christians that had, were just in a rough place in life and needed help. And on top of that, the early church was in a unique position because there were so many Christians who weren't residents of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, you remember that huge list of different countries that people had come to. Jews from around the world had come to Jerusalem to worship. Pentecost was one of three times in the Jewish calendar that every single Jewish male was required to be in Jerusalem to worship. Pentecost was one of those three. So Jerusalem was flooded with millions of travelers. And a lot of these people didn't live in Jerusalem. You remember it says in Acts chapter 2 that they were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own tongue. They were foreigners. So then after they become Christians, they're faced with a really hard decision. Do I want to go back home where my family and my job and my home is where there are no believers? There are no Christians in my hometown. Or do I want to stay in Jerusalem with all of the believers who are alive at this time? To listen to the apostles, to learn more about Christianity, and to be able to eventually take it back home. So a lot of these Christians are staying in Jerusalem just because they don't want to go back home. This is the one church in the world. So they're staying to grow and to enjoy fellowship. And, and so you have people who just honestly need help. And that's where we're at in Acts chapter 4. And I think it's incredible that it says in verse 34 that there wasn't a needy person among them. Even though there were needs, there were no needy people because of how people responded. For as many as had houses or lands sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. These were some really generous Christians. Christians who were taking care of each other. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, 33 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail. Back then, most people didn't have a bank account. Most of what they owned and um, most of their wealth was tied up in their possessions. So selling possessions to give to the needy was something that they had to do because most of them didn't have very much extra money sitting around. So people who had extra land or maybe two houses would sell it to take care. And that's when we're presented with two men um, one of them in Acts chapter 4 and one of them in Acts chapter 5. And we see the first one in the next verse, <clears throat> verse 36. It says, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him 
and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The first of the two men who are responding to this need is Joseph. And nobody really knows him as Joseph. We all just know him as Barnabas. This is the first time Barnabas pops up in the book of Acts or the New Testament at all. So I just thought it would be fun. What can we, if we pile all of our knowledge, what can we remember about Barnabas? This is the first time he pops up. It's by no means the only time he pops up. Do you have one? Oh, yeah, Joseph. That's a little confusing. That's a good guess. Anybody else? Anything we can remember about Barnabas, Brandon? He's, he's called the son of encouragement. Yep, that when they renamed him, that is what they renamed him. It's an incredible name. Okay, yeah, he was John Mark's cousin. The same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark and later went on half of a missionary with Paul and Barnabas before going back home. Anything else? They did, they did go on a second missionary journey. Um, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark again, and Paul didn't want him because he had abandoned him on the island of Cyprus. And it says that a sharp disagreement arose and they split ways. That had to be a bad day. Anything else we can think of about Barnabas? You guys are coming up with a lot of the ones I had written down. Yeah, it's interesting. He pops up here in chapter 4, but when we really look at the book of Acts, he's probably the third most significant character after Peter and Paul. His name shows up more than anybody else other than those two guys. Those are some... He did, yeah. Um, To Antioch. Yeah, Yeah, you guys came up with a lot of them. (laughs) Okay, so I want to look at how Barnabas was unique in this situation. Because he really does pop up here out of the blue. We don't know anything about him. Um, And we really, we know four things about him from this passage right here. One is that he was renamed by the apostles, which puts him in a pretty unique class of characters in the Bible. Not very many people are renamed for a spiritual reason. When we think of guys like this, we think of Abram, who is renamed Abraham, which I'm pretty sure goes from Abram, which means, I think it means exalted father, to Abraham, which I think means father of a multitude. Um, We think of Jacob, who is later named Israel, and I think of Peter, who went from Simon to Peter. All of those were significant name changes. All of them were name changes done by the Lord. As far as we know, the apostles only renamed one guy, and it was Barnabas. He must have been incredibly deserving of this this name, son of encouragement. 
We also know that he was a Levite, which means that he came from the tribe of the priests. He came from the tribe of the priests in the Old Testament. The ones who were specifically devoted to the ministry. We know that he was a native of Cyprus, which is an island off the coast of Israel. Um, Which I find really interesting. Because Levites, more than anyone, had responsibilities within the land. They were responsible for anything that went on in the temple. And so the fact that he had moved away from the land of Israel meant that he probably wasn't fulfilling any type of um, priestly duties. And also that he sold a field. That's the fourth thing. Which is also interesting because Levites, <laughs> because Levites weren't given an inheritance of land. When you look back in the Old Testament, um, and whenever Joshua brought the Israelites into the promised land, it was divided up among the tribes. And the tribe of Levi got no land. No land at all. They were given some cities to dwell in, but no land. So the fact that he owned land and sold land meant that it was probably land on the island of Cyprus, which is where he was a native of. But if you're interested in this, um, in Deuteronomy 10, 8 through 9, is kind of where it talks about this. It says that, that the Levites didn't have land. It said, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers because the Lord is his inheritance. So they weren't given any land, and yet Barnabas has land to sell. So all of the things that we know about Barnabas up to this point are all interesting. These four things, they're all unique. When you combine all these facts, I think it's really possible that Barnabas had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost and was saved there because he didn't live in the land of Israel. He was probably one of the people that were just in Jerusalem temporarily at that time. But he stays and he becomes an integral part of the church. So I want to just kind of, in a fast version, hit a lot of the big topics that we see about Barnabas in the book of Acts and in some of the other letters of Paul. And I want to point out what I think is Barnabas's greatest quality, and it's that he valued people. In a very unique way that others didn't, va- people had value in Barnabas's eyes. And we see it in Acts chapter 4 that he's willing to let go of his own property to provide for others. We see it in Acts chapter 9 because like Roxy mentioned, whenever Paul had this incredible experience with Christ on the Damascus Road and he became a believer, he came back to the Jerusalem church after a while and he said, hey, I I want all the way in. I want to serve with you guys and minister with you guys and spread the gospel with you guys. And everybody in Jerusalem was like, I don't think so. I don't think so, because we know who you were. And honestly, I can't blame them. Most of those early Christians in Jerusalem probably had family members and friends who were in jail because of Paul. And now he shows up, and his reputation had been the guy who was willing to do anything to squash Christianity. And now he's saying that he's one of us? That's hard to swallow. And Barnabas, in Acts chapter 9, opens his arms up to Paul and he says, no, I've heard about what he did in Damascus. 
and I'm willing to vouch for him. And apparently Barnabas had such an incredible reputation by that time in the church that Barnabas' voice let Paul in. Everyone was hesitant, and Barnabas spoke, and Paul was allowed in. That's the type of guy that Barnabas had. And we see him begin this reputation in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 11, we see him being the only guy that was sent to care for and encourage the new Christians in Antioch. The Jerusalem church got news that a new church had been planted in Antioch, and they were like, who do we send? Let's send Barnabas. And they sent Barnabas up there. And then when he gets there, he does go to get Paul, who was dwelling in Tarsus at the time, to come back and help him co-pastor. Later in that same chapter, Barnabas is chosen as the guy to go with Paul to bring a love offering back to Jerusalem to the saints who were struggling there at that time. Antioch sent a gift by the hand of Barnabas back to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 13, he was chosen by the church at Antioch and the Holy Spirit to go on the first mission trip with the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul tells us that it wasn't just him, it wasn't just the Apostle Paul who worked among the churches as a pastor without pay. It was Barnabas too. Barnabas wanted to be able to serve the church without being a burden. And Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 9. And I also find it interesting that in Galatians chapter 2, not only Barnabas' greatest successes, but Barnabas' greatest failure was in valuing people as well. In Galatians chapter 2, it says that um, when Peter came in, he was led astray by some of the, um, the Judean Christians who were treating the Gentile Christians differently, and it says that even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. So, but overall, Barnabas had an incredible ability to value other Christians. Selling land, going on missionary trips, taking care of baby churches, vouching for Paul. Barnabas had, had a great value for other believers. <clears throat> and it all started here. So that's the first guy that we see. We see Barnabas. We see a man who is willing to let go of his property, willing to let go of, um, of some of his own possessions just to take care of other believers. And he begins to have this reputation. He begins to have a name in the early church. Um, in another place in the Gospels, it actually calls Barnabas an apostle. Not an apostle in the same sense that the twelve were the apostles, or Paul was an apostle. An apostle means to be one who is sent. And I, I think that it's saying he was an apostle of the church. Not an apostle of Christ in that unique way, but an apostle of the church. One who is sent to officially represent the church. So trusted. And I think this sacrifice on the part of Barnabas would have been evident to everyone. Including a man named Ananias. And he's the second guy that we see. And I don't think we can separate these two stories because of the way that the passage comes out. Read, read again verse 34 with me. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And then it says, Thus Barnabas sold land. And then it says in 5.1, But Ananias sold land. Both of those two are connected to verse 34. Verse 34 happened, thus Barnabas acted, thus Ananias acted, or but Ananias acted. So these are two men 
in the same situation and they couldn't be any different. Barnabas is an incredible guy. Not so Ananias. Ananias, by that word but, is set up as the opposite of Barnabas. Thus Barnabas acted, but there was a man named Ananias who was not like Barnabas. But Ananias, he's the opposite. He's the bad example. Their stories start the same. Both men start with the action of selling land. And both men take the next step of bringing it and giving it to the apostles. But the similarities really stop there. Because the stories end very differently. One becomes the third most important character in the book of Acts. And one ends up dying just a few verses later. So, I know this is a familiar story. Let's, let's read um, 5 one through um, 11 together. And then we'll kind of, I'll point out the things that I, I think we need to take from this. So I guess you could say most of that was introduction, which is, that was a long introduction. I apologize. So if we don't get through all of it, maybe Doug will give me the first 20 minutes of next Sunday and I can give you the rest of them. Okay, Acts 5, let's start. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what has happened. But Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside the husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. All right, let me give you guys the fast version of what I have left. Now, I want to point out the sin that they did wasn't the sin of giving only part of the proceeds. Peter makes it very clear that when the land was theirs, they could do what they want, and after they sold it, they could do what they want. The problem was not that they brought maybe 20% of the proceeds or 10% of the proceeds. That's not the issue. The issue is that they lied to the Holy Spirit and tried to test the Holy Spirit. They wanted credit for all of it while only presenting some of it. And that's the problem. I just want to remind you guys, God looks at the heart of the giver. If they had brought 1% of the proceeds of their sale with a good, generous, loving heart, God would have been pleased. But they didn't. It was the lie. And if we trace it back, I think that we can trace it back to a sin further than the lie. We can look at the lie, that's what Peter said was the sin, We also see the sin of greed. They wanted some of the money. They didn't want to give it all. 
But I think we can go back a step further. And I think that Ananias was struggling with the sin of envy. I think that there's a reason why Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 unfolds the way it does, sequentially. In Acts chapter 4, it says that there was a need, and then Barnabas acted. And then after Barnabas acted, Ananias acted. And when you look at their actions, they're the exact same, except that Ananias lied. I think that Ananias looked at this guy named Barnabas, and he saw his reputation growing, and he saw his usefulness in the church, and he saw his influence, and he saw the way people talked about him. And I think Ananias wanted some of that. He wanted, he, he looked at Barnabas and he saw Barnabas' actions and he saw the favorable results. And he wanted the results without the sacrifice. So I want to just encourage you guys <clears throat> to be on guard against the sin of envy. I think it's very possible that both Ananias and Sapphira could have been Christians the way that it describes their sin as testing the Holy Spirit or lying to the Holy Spirit, it's hard for a non-believer to, to commit that sin because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Christians are in a, in a unique position to lie to or grieve or test the Spirit of God because non-believers don't have the same access to the Spirit that we do. So I think it's very possible that Peter is talking to believers here. If we go a few chapters later into the book of Acts, we deal with Simon the magician. Remember that story? And Peter says, may your gold perish with you. You thought you could purchase God's gift with money. The same situation in a lot of ways. We have guys dealing with wanting influence in the church through sinful means and dealing with a, a struggle for a desire for money. One of them gets a much stronger rebuke from Peter and ends up dead. And one of them doesn't. And I think it's because Peter's response to Ananias is a response towards a Christian. And, and God does demand a certain degree of standard in the church. And he does discipline his children. So it's very possible that they could have been Christians at this time. And I think that Ananias said, I see what Barnabas did, I see the results, and, and I want that. Why else would he act the same way but not give all the money? He wanted what Barnabas was experiencing. And it was the sin of envy that he struggled with. Now I want to be careful because there's nothing wrong with having a spiritual hero that you look up to. And there's nothing wrong with wanting a good reputation in the church. A good reputation is more valuable than gold and jewels and silver, Proverbs says. And there's nothing wrong with having influence in a church. None of those things are wrong. But when those become the goal and you begin to think that the end justifies the means, you're going to be willing to do what Ananias did here. Selfishness leads to envy. And that was what Ananias struggled with, was selfishness. And all of us are prone to selfishness. So it's true for all of us that if we're not careful, envy is just one little step away. So we got to be guard, on guard against envy. It ended up costing Ananias his life. So I think that God gives us two weapons against envy. I just want to mention them. Two incredible weapons. We have tons of them. But the, one of the weapons that we have against envy is the w weapon of contentment. Contentment. 
Hebrews 13, 1 Timothy 6, Philippians 4, they all talk about being content with what God has given us. I think most of the time when we think about contentment, we think about money, but it doesn't necessarily have to be about money always. It can be about other things as well. We need to be content in all areas of life, not just when it comes to our finances or our possessions. Um, Being content includes being content with God's plan for us fitting into the church. And that was what Ananias wasn't content with after watching Barnabas. I just want to encourage you guys um, with some truths in regards to that because I think we all struggle with that um, in in some way or another. So I just want to remind you guys, there is no such thing as an insignificant Christian and there is no such thing as an insignificant spiritual gift. God, when, when you become a Christian and God gives you a spiritual gift, it's exactly what he wants you to have. And it's exactly what you need to fulfill his plan for you. And I think about verses like Ephesians chapter 1 that says that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And we can trust him and we can trust his plan and we can trust what he's given us. And one of our greatest weapons against envy is trusting him. Trusting that I have exactly the gifts and the abilities that God wanted me to have. Trusting that I'm right where God wants me to be and that everything is going according to plan. I don't need to desire this gift because I don't have it. God didn't want me to have it to begin with. And it's so easy for us to look at someone and to think, man, I I just listened to the most incredible sermon and I wish I could preach like that. Or I was just a, a part of the most incredible Bible study and I wish I could lead a Bible study like that. Or I just watched a friend share the gospel and I wish I could evangelize like that. And it's so easy to slip into a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, and it's very destructive. So contentment is an incredible, an incredible weapon we have against that. Um, I want to give you guys an, an example of contentment. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, um, lived to be about the age of 80. And at the age of 80, his life was pretty hard. He had been a widower for 17 years by that time. And he was completely blind. But it's said of John Newton that when people would come up and ask him, how are you today, that his response was always the same. And his response was this. He would look at them and he would say, I am just as God would have me to be. How are you, John? I'm just as God would have me. That's a type of trust and a type of contentment in where God has placed us in life. I think that Ananias lost sight of that. If he was a believer, he definitely lost sight of that. If he wasn't a believer, he was still struggling with, with all of the sins because Christ hadn't made him a new creation. But if we could just have that type of perspective that I'm just as God wants me to be, then that will help us against envy. And also thankfulness. A thankful heart can't envy because a thankful heart is overwhelmed with the gifts that God has already given us. So contentment and thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so... I think that one of the dangers that we see in this passage is the danger of envying. Another danger 
is the danger of ignoring holiness. The danger of ignoring holiness. And that's God's holiness and God's standard of holiness for the church. When Ananias came and lied to the apostles and dropped the money at their feet, he was not fearing God. The furthest thing in his mind was the fear of God. All he was thinking about was himself. Guys, God has set a standard of holiness in the church. Titus chapter 2, I want to read this passage to you. And I want you to think about this and think about Christ's sacrifice and his goal for what he wants us to be. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then here's the purpose. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Does God want us to be holy? Absolutely. Christ died to help us renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live godly lives, and um, to redeem us from lawlessness. And Ananias wasn't thinking about holiness. Guys, sometimes we need to take a step back and we need to remember that when it comes to holiness, all of the options are on the table for God to get our attention. And we don't want to put ourselves in a position where God needs to get our attention. God needed to get the Corinthians' attention. When Paul wrote to them, he said, some of you guys are sick and some of you guys have even died because of the way you've been treating the Lord's Supper. And it's a lot of the same situation right here. God needed to make an example of Ananias and Sapphira so that the church would increase in holiness. And we don't want to put ourselves in the position where we might be the example. So there's a danger of envying that we see in this passage, and there's a danger of ignoring holiness. And then I think that um, just a, a last one to mention is kind of like a modern danger in our own lives. And that's the danger <clears throat> that will misunderstand church growth or church health. And I say that because of the way that this passage ends. It says in verse 11, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. But then if we keep reading, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And then it says, None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There's a serious trend right now that churches at least act like church health and church growth and church success depends on the church only receiving blessings and the church being an experience that's good or the church experience, the church um, being almost just a little bubble where all you get are sunshine and rainbows for a little and that is not at all what happened in this passage. In this passage, God killed a couple of people. And yet the church grew. God killed a couple of people on a Sunday worship service. 
And it says that no one, none of the rest joined them. Well, of course. No one wants to just go to a church and play a game where you might die. God might make an example of someone if we go to that church. But the church grew. And I think it's a great reminder to us that the greatest, the most important thing for a church to grow and be healthy isn't the most perfect environment. It isn't the greatest experience. It's personal holiness. I think that if you ask a lot of pastors nowadays, what are your hopes for next Sunday? I think you get answers like, well, we hope that worship will go through without any glitches. No sound system problems, nothing like that. Or you'd have a pastor that says, well, I hope people don't daydream during my sermon. Or, or you'd, you'd hear someone say, we just hope the visitors feel welcome. Listen, no visitor felt welcome on this day. No one. And I think sometimes we need to get past some of the external things that we're used to seeing and realize here we have a church where God caused the first Christian to die. No Christian had died up until this point. Very little persecution. The apostles had been threatened. At this point in Acts chapter 4, they had been threatened. But persecution hadn't really started. The first Christian didn't die because of persecution. The first Christian died by the hand of God. And here we have a church where people are dying in the middle of worship service. And yet the church is growing. And it's because in this church, personal holiness became an incredibly important thing. I think if we had asked the apostles, what's your hope for next Sunday? I think they would have said, we just hope God doesn't strike anybody down. We just hope that people come to church with a little bit better grasp on personal holiness than last Sunday. Because last Sunday didn't end well. And sometimes I think we need to elevate in our minds personal holiness. Nobody wanted to just associate with this early church. None of the rest dared to join them. I wouldn't have. But more than ever, people were coming to the Lord. Salvations were happening. And guys, growth of a church doesn't depend on our creating the perfect environment or on there not being any heartache in a church. Personal holiness is the greatest testimony to the authenticity of the gospel. And I think in Acts chapter 5, we really do see that. So, three things. Kind of had to um, hustle through it a little bit. But I think from this passage, we see the danger of envy and where that can lead. Ananias is an example of that. We see um, the danger of ignoring personal holiness. And then we also see... Um, a warning to us to trust God in growing his church. If we'll care about personal holiness and if we'll submit ourselves to the will of God, he's the one that makes a church grow. Nobody through a marketing campaign could bring people to a church where people were killed by God. But the power of the gospel can bring people to a church where God's even making that type of example, where God's even being that strict about sin in the church. So I hope that causes you guys to think a little bit um, differently about Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Let's be Barnabases. Let's not be Ananias and Sapphira. Um, even though God probably won't strike us down, 
that seems to be a pretty rare instance, we still don't want to put ourselves in that type of a position before God. So um, let me pray for us and then, and then we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you that the New Testament and the Bible in, in a whole, the Bible in general, God, um, it doesn't dodge the hard passages. It doesn't dodge the hard truths. And here we have an example of someone who chased after their own sin and paid an incredibly high price for it. And God, I pray that this evening that personal holiness and the holiness of the church is elevated in our minds. God, I do pray that we take the example of Barnabas to heart of valuing people just like he valued people throughout his entire ministry in Acts. God, I do pray that you'll help us to realize that personal holiness is the greatest factor in contributing to the health of a church and the growth of a church. And I thank you for the way that Acts chapter 5 shows that as well. God, I pray that you'll protect us from sin. God, and help us to be contentment or to be content and thankful people.